Today's reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, the 19th chapter, verses 28 through 46. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So over my years here, I've preached a lot of sermons on Palm Sundays. Um, And this last week, I was kind of going through some of those past files, looking at what I've preached on over the years. And I noticed that seven years ago, I actually preached on this same passage on a Palm Sunday. And I began that passage by talking about a wedding that was just about to happen. And it was the wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton. Well, I've noticed that the royal family thought of me again, and they placed another wedding right after my sermon. So I'm going to reuse this illustration. Uh, Because now Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are getting married. And just as that one, the prediction is that the number of people that will watch that wedding is just astronomical. Uh, It was predicted back then, actually Great Britain had put out stuff before that last wedding saying that they thought that Over two billion people would be watching it live. Uh, They've since, a lot of people have said that was kind of exaggerating what was going to happen. But they do think that from the actual watching it live till just the pieces of it that were watched over the next couple of days may have been that great or greater. That as much as a third of the world's population may have watched at least some part of that wedding. That is unbelievable. And once again, I don't know if this one will be as popular, you know, it's the little brother, but, but a lot of people are going to watch this wedding, right? 
Why? Why are we so captivated by things like that? Why do wealth, power, royalty, extravagance, why do they just so capture our attention? And when you read this story that was just read, boy, it really strikes you, the contrast, doesn't it? The contrast between these great processions. I know with uh, Prince William, they said that after the wedding, the procession through the through the city had three carriages, ornate carriages that were hundreds of years old as part of it. 160 people on horseback were part of it. Here's Jesus' procession. And that last week before he will, be, will die on the cross, here he is, the king of kings, the savior of the world, the creator of all, his procession into the city. Real contrast, isn't it? So I want to think with you for the next few minutes just about that a little about the nature of the kingship of Jesus as compared to the nature of the kingship of, of rulers throughout history in this world. How are they different? How is our king, the king of kings, a different kind of king? Well, the first thing I want to point out is he is a, a king on a donkey. Uh, a donkey, some people have said, well, that was a poor man's animal. It's really probably not true. It's probably a middle-class animal. Uh, but it wasn't the rich man's animal. Uh, a horse was. A horse was a sign of wealth. It was a sign of power. It was even a weapon of war in that day. A donkey was kind of a more common animal, uh, and it was a beast of burden. It was there to do work. That's what it was about. It wasn't about looking pretty. It was about getting the work done. He rides in on a donkey, but he also rides on a donkey that um, was young, Never ridden by anybody else, and we're told it's probably, un- which means it was been an unbroken donkey. And maybe part of him riding it that way is to again say to the world around him, those watching, that um, he is the creator. He is the one that even the animals submit to as he rides in. Also, it was borrowed. So not only was this not the great horse, but this wasn't even his donkey. He had to borrow the donkey. Maybe a symbol, again, of a, of a king who's different, who wealth is not at the center of his life. It's not what really mattered. Um, Luke tells us that uh, he did this, he wrote in this way to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophets, uh, prophesied by the prophets. So here's the passage that talks about it in Luke 9. Rejoice greatly, O king of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is a different kind of king. This is a king who, despite his incredible power, his incredible authority, and and I want to remind you, he's not shying away from the fact that he has authority. He's not trying to hide that in this case. In this case, he enters Jerusalem in a way that does say he's the one with authority. He's the promised one. He enters in a way that the prophet Zechariah prophesied the coming king, the one who comes with the authority given by God, the one who comes to save Israel. This is how he'll enter Jerusalem. And he he owns that. He accepts that. He is making a statement about who he is. He's making a statement about who he is and the fact that he receives the the palms being laid before him or the branches laid before him and the cloaks 
because that was a welcome for a conquering hero or for, for royalty. And he accepts that. Matthew tells us he accepts words from the two blind men that he healed right before this. Words that called him the son of David. Again, a title that meant he was this promised king. He was the one that God was going to send to rescue. He, he accepts these words of Hosanna, these praises of Hosanna. They're being sung to him uh, from Psalm 118. Words that mean the one who saves. Again, he received that. He's not denying his authority at all. He's not saying, I'm not that one. But he also chooses to enter in this way, and I think he makes a statement about his kingship that's different than what you expect a king to be. He's gentle. He's humble. He's righteous. He's the one who saves. But he's a different kind of king. He brings salvation in a different way. One of the things that struck me as I read this this week was there is no insecurity uh, in Jesus about this. He doesn't deny it in any way. Now me, if someone brought me praises, if they're singing Hosanna to me, I am, I'm going to be like King Saul. I'm going to go hide behind the baggage because even though I may kind of enjoy that, there's another part of me knows, yeah, I know the truth. You know, I may have had a moment that was good, but the other moments are going to follow. Uh, I'm going to be exposed, right? And you set the standards too high, I'm sure to disappoint. So I kind of want to bring them down a little. I want to enjoy it, but I kind of want to bring them down a little. Don't see any of that in Jesus. He fully accepts their praises. Uh, even the Pharisees begin to tell him to quiet those who are praising him. Stop. They understood what those words meant. And what's Jesus' response? I could stop them. But then even the rocks will cry out. He deserves that praise. He is the promised one. He knows it, doesn't hide from it. He is a king, but he's a different king, a king like no other. Revelation 19 tells us that a day is coming when he will enter this world in a different way. He will come on horseback. He will come with the armies of heaven behind him. He will come as one who is bringing judgment. He is one who will cleanse the world of evil. That day is coming. But he tells us in this coming that now I come gentle, patient, humble, righteous, in a way that really invites people to come close, not to run, right? Uh, this was a time when we'd say, oh, that's, that's not kind of the way we expect royalty to enter. Well, I think in that day they would have thought the same thing because there was a real contrast, I think, even in the city at that day going on because this was a time when in Jerusalem during the Passover that they said the city would swell to four or five times its normal population because of Jewish pilgrims from all over the known world coming together to Jerusalem for Passover. This place was packed. You know, we whine and complain about going to Target on move-in week. This place was monstrous, packed, you know, ancient city. It was probably a rough place to be. Where do people stay? How do they get food? What facilities do they use? It's probably a rough place to be during that time. Packed. And that's the time uh, that he's coming into. But it's also the time that, again, Rome occupied Palestine. Uh, they were under Roman rule. And so it's a time when Rome would generally send down from Caesarea, a city to the north, where their army was and the Roman governor over that province was. They would come down to Jerusalem to kind of keep order. They were also coming down to remind them we're in charge. Because remember, Passover is a time when they celebrate God's blessing and God's release from the foreign powers in another situation from Egypt. So probably wants to kind of remind them, let's not get carried away with this. You know, we're still in charge. 
we're still over you. So they said that the governor would come down, in this case Pontius Pilate would come down, he would have this long army behind him, cavalry, soldiers on foot, and they would come down from Caesarea and they would enter Jerusalem from the west towards the beginning of Passover. And about the same time, Jesus comes in from the Mount of Olives in the east, and this is how he enters. What a contrast. Here's power. Here's a power that's in charge, and it lets you know with intimidation, with shows of greatness, we're in charge. And here's one with authority who comes in riding on the back of a donkey to people praising him. He's a different kind of king. Why? Why now does he enter in this way, with this patience, withholding judgment for now? Why does he enter this way? Well, I think it's because he is also, um, he's a king who weeps. That's amazing in this passage. And we hear this so many times we pass right over it. But as he's coming down the Mount of Olives, Jerusalem is before him. He can see the city. In this city that's just packed with people, as he comes down, he looks at the city and he actually begins to cry. Uh, I'm told that this word for crying probably doesn't mean he had tears in his eyes. It meant he was crying. He was literally crying as he looked at the city. And again, we, we hear that and we go, well, we kind of understand that. We can understand it was sad what would someday happen to him because he knew the future. He knew it wasn't that many years in the future that because of a rebellion, Rome was going to come in under Titus and was going to just smash their rebellion. The city of Jerusalem was going to be crushed by Rome. And they were going to be destroyed and wiped out. Children, women, men, they are just going to be horribly, horribly. That rebellion is going to be squashed in the way Rome squashed rebellions. Even the temple, God's symbol of presence with his people, is going to be destroyed. It is going to be a horrible destruction. He knows that. He knows that is coming in their future. And he says it's coming because they have rejected him, the Prince of Peace. He knows that that's the consequences. And he looks at them knowing their future, and he cries. But you know the other thing that's true? Is he also knew pretty soon he was going to be entering the city, and these people before him are going to be the people that are going to be cheering for his crucifixion. These are the people who are going to spit upon him and mock him, are going to horribly abuse him, are going to nail him to a cross and do so in such a way to purposely bring shame to him. They're going to do all of these things, these very people in front of him, many who are even now right with him, cheering for him, are the ones who are going to deny him and betray him. He knows that too. And yet he looks at this city of people who will do that to him, and he cries for the suffering that they will experience because of their sin and because of their rejection of him. It struck me, how often do we cry for our enemies? How often do we do that? You know, do we feel kind of their loss? How often do we respond that way to those who, uh, to anybody, let alone those who would be our enemies? I was reading this week, and this may seem like a silly comparison, because it is, but I was reading this week about uh, some people in the music industry who were telling about these uh, times when someone came to them and they missed an opportunity because they didn't get it. So one of them was Chris Wright, who was the founder of Chrysalis Records. He said David Bowie used to come into his office all the time 
He came in so much that they finally started telling the secretaries just to get rid of him, tell him we're not in because they were so tired. He had already had one hit, but they were absolutely convinced he was a one-hit wonder. So they completely rejected it. Finally, somebody else picked him up and made millions off of him. The band Dire Straits came in same way, kept trying to get a contract. They said, you know, they were good musicians. They were just really boring. Nobody's going to want to listen to them. The Spice Girls came in. They wanted a contract. Their response was only one could really sing, and none of them had songwriting potential. Now, that may have been true, but nonetheless, they made millions of dollars, and they missed that opportunity. Andrew Lloyd Webber's Broadway play Cats, they had the opportunity to invest in that and sponsor that. Uh, They just decided it wasn't that good. As a matter of fact, the chairman, this, this guy uh, from Chrysalis Records, went to their opening of that play after he'd been offered the opportunity. And he said he walked off out saying to himself, thank God I did not invest in that. That thing was horrible. Uh, he may have been wrong. Well, I don't know how good it was. I never went, but it definitely made some money. Dick Rowe, one of the other music executives from Decca Records, he said he passed on the Beatles after hearing their demo. He sent a letter to their manager telling them, not to mince words, Mr. Epstein, but we don't like your boy's sound, and groups are out anyways. Uh, they may have been wrong. <laughs> Imagine the 12 publishers that turned down uh, Harry Potter. 12 of them turned, him down, turned her down. And the 13th only accepted her, gave her a contract uh, for her transcript because he read part of it to his eight-year-old daughter and she liked it so well because he was going to turn it down until he saw her response to it. And then he decided to publish it. Imagine the sense of regret. You know, oh, I missed an opportunity. I missed it. You know, we can kind of ache with them for a missed opportunity. They lost some money. They maybe lost some prestige. You know, you, you get over those things, and they all did. Jesus looks at this city before him, and he knows the horrors before them. He knows not just the horrors that are coming, but the loss of them turning their back on him. They have lost peace. They have lost shalom in this world and in the world to come. And he feels it. And he cries for them. He feels the loss, the pain, and he feels it deeply. This is a different kind of king. It's not what we really expect of kings, right? To be filled with that kind of compassion for even their enemies. This is a different kind of king. Finally, he's a king who confronts. He does get mad. It does get angry a few things. And in Luke 19, 45 to 46, we see when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It's written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he turns over their selling tables. He stops all activity in the temple, stops anything from going through. For at least a little temporary period, he stops everything in this temple at a time when it was probably the busiest time of the year in the temple. He stops it all. And, and he says, because this, this place, this temple, is a, supposed to be a house of prayer. Well, what's that mean? Well, that comes from uh, Isaiah 56. It says, And the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who fast to my covenant. So he starts out by saying, All these people who are foreigners but have turned to the one true God, and are now followers of God, have converted to Judaism, are 
his believers. So Isaiah's looking ahead, and he says, The day's coming, for these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted upon my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. In the time of Jesus, the temple that was there in Jerusalem at this time was what we call Herod's temple. Uh, We don't call it the third temple, even though it seems like it's kind of the third one, because it was really a remodeling and expansion of the second one. So he made this thing just enormous and extravagant, and Herod made it, you know, the pride of the world, the temple of that time. This is where Jesus is coming. One thing that I understand is that it it looks like what he had changed, though, one of the things that changed in Herod's temple from the tabernacle and from from Solomon's temple, one of the things that changed was there was now a dividing wall. There was a wall that divided the courts into an outer court that was called the Court of the Gentiles. And the Court of the Gentiles was the only place where the foreigners, these foreigners who were now following God, could come to worship in the temple. They were pushed to the very far outer extremes. And they were pretty clearly told, that's where you stay. That's where you belong. Because archaeologists have since found a sign that used to be over the one gate, the one doorway through that wall into the other courts. Here's what the sign said. Any Gentile who proceeds beyond this point will be responsible for their own death, which will shortly ensue. That's a pretty strong statement. Don't come through the door unless you're a Jew. Do not enter here. This is the one place where the foreigner could worship in these outer courts, the courts of the Gentile. And then, during the time of Jesus, Caiaphas, who was the high priest, he decided to take the selling of animals for sacrifice, the exchanging of money so that foreigners could change their money to get money that was accepted in the temple for offerings. He, he decided to take this big market that was always outside the temple and he moved it into the court of Gentiles. So now the only place where the foreigners could come and worship also became a giant farmer's market. That's what it was. It was really there kind of to serve other needs. It wasn't really about them. Not a strong statement of you're welcome here. Not a strong statement of we invite you in and want you to be a part and we consider you one of us. It was a pretty strong statement of stay out. We may need to accept you, but let's make as little of you as humanly possible. Jesus says, my house is a house of prayer. His house is meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. This is a king who loves all, all his creation, all people, doesn't care about color, doesn't care about nationality, doesn't care about gender, doesn't care. This is a God who loves his people. Insider, outsider, doesn't matter. Um, We divide, separate, put up walls. That's not our God. Then this phrase, den of robbers. This comes from Jeremiah 7. And he's here speaking to Israel, and he says, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known? So they've been doing all these sins, running around, acting like they don't know God at all. He says, Then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, We are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? See, a lot think that that phrase, den of robbers, when Jesus uses it, it's talking about the fact that they were ripping people off by you know, exorbitant charges for the animals they needed to buy to sacrifice or the birds they needed to buy or for the um, changing money. And that may have been the case because it's pretty clear they did things like that. But I think what he's actually condemning here primarily is not that. 
What he's condemning here is, you have, you've turned the temple in a place where you come and you feel justified. You feel like this is kind of your own little um, kind of private club where you come and you rest and get restored and you feel good about yourself and you go right back out and do everything you've been doing before. Instead of a people who come before God in the temple and worship and realize, man, it is only because of the grace of God and his mercy that we stand before him. We are sinners who bow before our God because we so need his mercy. We stand shoulder to shoulder with anyone else in this temple because we all before God are sinners in need of his mercy. To them, no, we're kind of the insiders. This is our club. This is a place where we come and kind of celebrate, you know, all the kind of rewards of our robbery, rest a little, and we go back out and we do it again. That is not God's temple. That's not what it was meant to be. And I think Jesus symbolically stops all activity in the temple for a short period of time, making a statement that this is not the activity of the temple. This is not what it's meant to be. He confronts, but the thing I see that, you know, he didn't get angry about all these people who are just about to do these horrible things to him. He weeped over them. What do you get angry about? He got angry about spiritual arrogance. He got angry about the spiritual callousness. That stirred his anger. That he confronted. He weeped over those who were going to suffer because of their foolish choices. So what do we do with this? So how do we apply this today to us? I want to suggest just a a few things. So this king on a donkey... Well, one thing I'd say is maybe we ought to evaluate the methods that we trust to bring change. Jesus didn't choose the methods of of the world around him. Jesus could have come in and used intimidation and force to bring change to his world, to change the hearts of men and women, at least to change their behavior, because that's what force and intimidation does, right? But he didn't. He came in a way that invited them to draw close that invited them in, that made himself available to them, that even though he deserved to be served, he served them. He was humble. He was gentle. And by that, I don't mean he set aside truth. He was righteous, right? He came to bring salvation from sin, not to encourage sin. We're called to speak boldly, but we're called to do it in a way that I think reflects our king, that chooses his methods, not the methods of the world around us. So do we... Do we speak the truth? Speak the truth boldly, but speak it with gentleness. Speak it in a way that invites. Speak it in a way that makes ourselves available. Or do we get caught up in just protecting ourselves? He's a king who weeps. In a world where rulers are quick to crush their enemies, to show their power, he's a, he is a king who weeps, even over his enemies. And I was thinking about this. When have I weeped for my enemies? When have I shed a tear because of the suffering that my enemies will have because of their sin? I can't think of a time. If it was, I'm forgetting it. Uh, that is not my common response. Usually if my enemy's going to suffer, I'm cheering that they suffer, you know. I, I wouldn't go this far cheering, but, you know, I'm an Ohio State fan, so when Michigan loses, I get a little excited, you know. I'm even having a hard time cheering for them in NCAA, even though it's a Big Ten team, because it's just Michigan, you know. I just can't bring myself to do it. They're not really my enemy, but when it's a real enemy, when it's a true enemy, man, do you, do you cry for them? I don't. But Jesus did. Jesus is one who so longs for people to know him and to choose him and to follow him 
There is really nothing worse than seeing them turn away from him. That is the saddest thing uh, before him. Maybe we ought to think about that. Do we pray for our enemies? Do we love our enemies as Scripture calls us to do? What would that look like? And it, it saddens me that I think a lot of times, and I do this too, this is not yelling at you, this is yelling at me. Uh, when we see threats before us, when we see a world that sometimes is coming against us, there's a tendency to circle the wagons. There's a tendency to say, well, now we need to protect ourselves, protect our way, protect our everything. That's what it's about. And I, and I don't think self-protection is always completely wrong. There are times that protection's okay. It's hardly top of the list for Jesus. It's hardly what he models most for us is self-protection. What he models is being somebody who's willing to make sacrifices for the sake of others, who weeps even for their enemies' destruction. Instead of circling the wagons and being so quick to do that, maybe we should again consider the strategies of Jesus to really truly bring change to our world. Here's an example. I'm going to... show you from these are the nine people that were killed in that charleston church shooting Uh, the nine people lost their life in that horrible shooting Uh, at one of the court hearings for the man who committed these murders dylan roof uh, the white supremacist who committed the murders um, family members were allowed to speak and this was actually real early in the process so this was right after this event had occurred these family members came and spoke in one of the early court hearings I chose just a few of them. I read some of these to my ACG a while back, and I'm going to read them here again. I chose just a few of the many that were there uh, just to see the, the words that these people spoke with that man in the room. He was in the room with them, and they spoke these words a very short time after all this occurred. Here were some of their responses. First is from a woman named, um, or no, this was the daughter of Ethel Lance, who was one of the, a 70-year-old woman who was killed. He said, you took, she said, you took something really precious from me. I will never talk to her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people horribly. But God forgives you, and I will forgive you. Felicia Sanders, mother of the youngest victim, 26-year-old Tawanza Sanders, also spoke. She said, every fiber in my body hurts, and I will never be the same. We welcome you Wednesday. We welcomed you Wednesday night into our Bible study with open arms. You have killed some of the most beautiful people that I know. As we said in the Bible study, we enjoyed you, but now we say, "May God have mercy on you." Another said, "I forgive you, and my family forgives you." It was Anthony Thompson, the husband of one of the women killed. He said, "But we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Our prayers are that you would change your ways." Another said, although my grandfather and the other victims died in the hands of hate, this is proof, everyone's plea for your soul is proof, they lived in love, and their legacies will live in love. He was the grandson of 74-year-old Daniel Simmons. He said, hate will not win in this case. Finally, another said, husband of one of those killed, said, for me, I am a work in progress. I'm still very angry. We are the family that love built. We have no room for hate, so I'll deal with my hate, and I will seek to forgive you. Those are remarkable words. Shortly after that occurred, um, with that man in the room, and you think about what is more powerful? What, is, what will conquer hatred evil more? 
words of vengeance, tax. And these people aren't saying this man didn't deserve punishment. They weren't in here saying that it didn't matter what you did. Those were words that wept, right? When they spoke about their family members, you can hear their weeping in their words. They did. They weeped for the sadness that that evil caused and the loss that evil caused. But they also actually wept in a sense for their enemy. Sure came a lot closer to it than I ever do. Um, I think that is what our, our king models for us. In his kingdom, he encouraged us to be one who weeps, even for those who deserve their punishment, because we so long for them to know the peace and shalom that comes from Jesus. Finally, he's a king who confronts, confronts spiritual arrogance and callousness. And to that, I just say, I think all of us would do well to ask ourselves, are we... Are we kind of creating a little private club of those like us, those that make us comfortable? And, and I do it. We all do it, right? We, we kind of circle around those that we feel like we fit with. And we get comfortable with that, and we never look beyond it. And pretty quickly, it just becomes a little safe place. Or do we look beyond ourselves and say, who is the outsider? Who is the one who honestly wants in, wants to be a part? And have we truly invited them in? If we invited them in as someone who stands shoulder to shoulder with me, I don't care what their sins are, I don't care what their life, because honestly, except for the grace of God, I'm not here either, just like them. It's not that sin doesn't matter. It's not that truth doesn't matter. But we all stand before God as people who deeply, deeply need his mercy and his grace. Do we see others through those lens? I think our king encourages us to do this. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords king different than any other king. That's the king we serve, and we, I think we should serve him in the way he modeled before us. Let's pray. And Lord, we do thank you that we have a king who is righteous, a king who is gentle, a king who is humble, a king who, who hates and will judge sin, but a king who is also merciful and patient. Father, we thank you Pray you'd help us to be people who more and more look like good citizens of your kingdom. In your blessed name, amen.